Let us open our Bibles to that 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. Our beloved brother Peter wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in our hearts. That is Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, and it's referring to the scriptures that you hold in your hands. They are more sure than hearing God's voice from heaven in the presence of heavenly men like Elijah and Moses and earthly men like James and John. Peter said that he heard the almighty voice of God, and yet he's able to tell us that we have also a more sure word. What we have before us in writing is more sure than any vision or dream or revelation that God would make to anyone since the apostles. We're very blessed. Due to the length of this chapter, we shall not waste much time on any, or we shall not spend much time on any one verse. If you have further questions about this chapter afterwards, we will seek to address them. But let us learn what we can. This is very different from studying John 10. We don't have a parable here, although we have a proverb in the midst of it. And though we have a spiritual use of some words that take some rightly dividing, we don't have a parable. We have a history. We have a history of a couple of events that are very important. We'll deal with one this morning and one in the second assembly. There are many lessons for our practical growth in grace found in these verses. And I will try to briefly mention them as we encounter them in the various verses. The lesson is simple. The lesson is glorious. The lesson is something you ought to remember. The event happened for a very specific reason. It was designed to involve and include the resurrection from the dead of Lazarus. And it was designed and it was delayed so that it happened in such a way for the growth in faith of his apostles and for some others, but for his apostles. And so those that have great faith or faith already can still increase in that faith. And thus we have John 11. And so let's learn it. It's a simple lesson. Some of the verses we can go over rather quickly because they're just connecting verses leading us from one minor event to another in this unfolding of a glorious drama of the resurrection of our brother Lazarus. I would encourage any that are listening to this by way of the internet or any other media that you read Luke chapter 10 verses 38 through 42, that you read John chapter 12 verses 1 through 11, Both passages will assist you in understanding this chapter by telling you a little more about Mary and Martha. May you, in this building here and any others listening, have the same spirit and attitude of Mary that she sat at the feet of Jesus to hear his word and Jesus defended her in that choice, though there were things to do in that house, the things to do in that house weren't as important, weren't as important as sitting at the feet of Jesus. May we sit there right now. Now a certain man was sick. 
named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. We have had these sisters mentioned to us in the pages of Scripture. Bethany was a popular place just two miles from Jerusalem. It lies on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus Christ was there often. These were close friends of His, as we're about to read. But we're not dealing with a parable about a certain man that went down. We have a man named here, and his two sisters named, and his village of abode named. Jesus was known as Jesus of Nazareth because Joshua was such a common name in Israel, and Lazarus being common enough itself, he's identified here as that Lazarus that has two sisters, Mary and Martha, and lives in the village of Bethany. And then in parentheses, John, by the Holy Spirit, tells us in advance about an event of Mary and the Lord Jesus. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. That is why I suggested reading John 12, 1 through 11, because this is an event that didn't happen till the 12th chapter, but it's stuck in, in parentheses, to tell you it's not in order. It's just a little bit of information for you to recognize who we're talking about. And these two sisters deserve being talked about. We don't know much about Lazarus. We know more about the two sisters, and we know the most about Mary, and we love her. And that's why she's mentioned so much. And if you were to turn over to Matthew's account or Mark's account of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus, you would find out that Jesus would say, wherever this gospel is preached in all the world, a record and an account of this woman's character, this woman's worship, and this woman's act of anointing my feet will be taught. Because the Pharisees among his own crowd, the, the, the covetous among his own apostles said that it was a waste of money to have anointed the feet of Jesus in such a way. They didn't really care about the poor, and Jesus said you're always going to have the poor, and they're not very important. What's important is the Lord of glory. And when the Lord of glory is worshipped, he can take care of the poor. There's a priority for all of our charity There's a priority for all of our thoughts. Mary had her thoughts in the right place in every occasion that we find her. Let the Lord lead us on. Verse 3, Therefore, because Lazarus was sick, therefore his sisters, and they were Mary and Martha from the first verse, sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Now we're about to be told that Jesus did love these three siblings. Jesus loved Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. But they knew that. And they could presume on it. And so they sent to Jesus, declaring that he loved Lazarus, and asked for his mercy toward him on the grounds of that special affection that he had for Lazarus. There is nothing wrong, even though the PTA would like to tell you differently, in having favorites. The Bible is full of favorites from beginning to end, whether it's Jacob among his twelve sons, or whether it's Jesus and his favorite three apostles, or whether it's God and David, there are favorites. The Bible tells ministers to be lovers of good men. It doesn't tell them to be lovers of all men, nor does it tell them to be lovers of all members. It says to be lovers of good men. 
Because we should distinguish in character of those that we know and love the righteous more. Because we have more in common with them. Because they please our Lord more. And because He loves them more. This is not referring to His eternal, legal, vital, or final love. But His personal affection and delight and friendship that He had with these three. And it will be raised again as He comes to where Lazarus is laid. But they appeal to it because they know it. They're good friends. And what a blessing that would have been to have been a friend of the Lord Jesus Christ. A wonderful verse in verse 4. When Jesus heard that, when he heard the news that Lazarus was sick, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. You'll want to remember this verse because verse 4 becomes important as we get later on. And Jesus refers to statements made to Martha and statements made to God his Father in a past tense. He makes a statement right here to messengers sent by Mary and Martha. And he gave them words that they carried back to Mary and Martha. So in effect, he was speaking to Mary and Martha. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. It was unto death. It indeed was unto death. Verse 14, Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. This is a place in the Bible, one of thousands, that remind us of the importance of 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. This is not a, this is a sickness not unto death that's going to last. This is not a sickness unto death which I won't end for him because he did die. But this, you say, well, I can understand this one. Well, I'm good. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're able to understand this one because this is a kindergarten level. But this kind of a statement is throughout the Bible where you are expected and a man of God is expected to apply the sweat, the mental sweat, and the mental tears, and the mental prayers to rightly divide the word of truth. Because Lazarus most indeed was dead, and dead for 96 hours when our Lord arrived in Bethany. But the main thing here in this fourth verse is that the event was for the glory of God. Now we should be familiar with that if you were reading through the Gospel of John. If you had John in your hands and were delighting in its words, in the ninth chapter you would have read where the apostles asked Jesus about a man that was blind from birth. Who did sin? This man or his parents that he was born blind. And Jesus said, neither his parents nor he sinned. There's another one of rightly dividing, isn't it? Because all three had sinned. But none of them had sinned to cause his blindness. The blindness was for the glory of God, an occasion for the Lord Jesus Christ to perform a miracle. Without there being some adversity and trouble, how can the Lord Jesus Christ show his power to deliver from adversity and trouble? And so a lesson arises for us again in the fourth verse. Until there is trouble in your life, how does God get glory by delivering you from it? And the trouble may start out as being sickness, and you may begin praying for it, like the two sisters did, and then the sickness deteriorate to death. 
Has he heard your prayer? He heard their prayer. But he had a higher goal in mind. A greater deliverance. Greater glory. If he had responded immediately and saved him from his sickness, their growth in grace, their growth in faith, and the glory of God would have been reduced from his infinitely wise planning of the whole event. But for the glory of God, God is glorified when the Lord Jesus Christ is glorified because he is the only begotten Son of God. When Jesus Christ could perform a great miracle, God was glorified through it. We are able to glorify God by our lives. And God is glorified through us. We had a verse read in this assembly in the last two weeks by our brother Ed for our sister Christine, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 12 that teaches that we should be giving glory to God in two different ways. Our glory is compatible and closely related to His as the glory of Jesus Christ was closely related to the glory of God. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. What a wonderful statement. This is not a description here of their eternal election. That's evident from a countless other examples that we have through the passage. Nobody is in need of that information. This is personal information that Jesus had toward them. They understood it. He's going to show it when he gets closer and sees them weeping about their brother. But what a blessing. Now God, through Jesus Christ, loves all of his elect. But on a personal, practical level, he is closer to some than to others. There is no doubt about that. It's shown by his obvious favor upon some more than others while they're in this world. Let me repeat that David would say in First Chronicles 28 at the end of his life that of the whole nation of Israel, God chose Judah. Of all the families of Judah, the largest tribe of Israel, he chose the house of my father Jesse, Of all the sons of my father Jesse, and there were eight, I need help with the words, he liked me. Is that talking about his election? Is that talking about putting his name in the book of life? No. God liked David because David had a character that was likable by God. And when we read verses like this, when I read verses like this, I swallow and say, Lord... I want the spirit of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus that you loved about them. I want that same spirit. And we need to ask and answer that question. Verse 6, when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick. When Jesus had heard, therefore, by the messengers from Mary and Martha, that Lazarus was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. This is our Savior. If you make a prayer today for a request that's very important to you and it's not answered today, you need to remember John chapter 11. The Lord Jesus Christ may have a slight smile on the corners of his mouth because he has in store for you a bigger blessing if you would just hold on. Instead of getting impatient with him or losing faith because of the delay. Listen, the delay is necessary to build your faith. If you became accustomed to the Lord answering every prayer of yours as soon as you uttered it, that doesn't involve faith. Faith is the confidence of things not seen. If he was immediately answering all your prayers, it would always be seen. But you have to wait on him. I love that song we just sang a few moments ago, that faith can see things a thousand years ago, and faith can see things a thousand years to come. We can see creation and we can see the resurrection. 
All by faith. And faith comes by delays. It comes by troubles. And sometimes those troubles may deteriorate to worse troubles. There's so many lessons here. We've got to move on. He, he stayed there two more days. Though Lazarus was sick, and Jesus knew just how sick he was in graphic detail beyond any physician or Mary and Martha's own assessment of him. But he stayed there two more days. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. Now remember, we had learned in John chapter 10, where was Jesus? And Jesus was in the temple in Jerusalem. So he had just been in Judea. And what did they try to do to him in Judea? They tried to stone him in John chapter 8. They tried to stone him in John chapter 10. They tried to take him in John chapter 10. There was a division among the Jews because of him in Jerusalem in John chapter 10. It was a serious situation, and the Jews showed their hatred of him by their efforts to stone him on at least two occasions that were told about John 8, John 10. Verse 8, his disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late meaning not a long time ago, the Jews recently, and they're still hot, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Why why are we going back there? Don't you know that your life is in jeopardy in Jerusalem? Let's not go into Judea. Let's stay here on the other side of Jordan where John baptized. We're safe here in Bethabara. Jesus answered, And here's a proverb, and this is why there needs to be study in the Word of God and careful dissecting of words. Jesus answered to their concern about his safety by going back into Judea. Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. Let's deal with that verse first. The proverb is basically two verses long, and there's a lesson here, and it's an obscure lesson. In verse 9, Jesus is talking about the sun that shines in the sky and makes a light for men to work in the daytime. This was long before there was the invention of artificial light and the rise of capitalistic greed like our nation where factories and other operations are at work 24-7. This is the sun, and there is nothing more in this verse than the sun. The S-U-N sun. The S-O-N, son, is not in the verse. It's a proverb. It's a metaphor. Are there not 12 hours in a day? Well, there's actually 24 hours in a day. But there's 12 hours in the day time, which we call the time of light. And if a man walks during that 12 hours of daylight, he doesn't stumble or fall because he sees the light of this world. And the light of the world in this verse is the S-U-N, son. Yes, Jesus is the light of the world. Do you know why it says in other places that Jesus is the light of the world? And here it says the light of the world, but it's the S-U-N? Because you are supposed to remember five verses later, 2 Timothy 2.15. Let me quote it again. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Of course Jesus is the light of the world. It says that in a couple of other places, but that's not what it's talking about here. This is the sun, S-U-N. There's 12 hours in a day. If you're walking during the daytime, nothing bad is going to happen to you. 
Because you can see where you're walking and you're not going to stumble and fall because you have the light of the world and the light bulb of the world is the sun, 93 million miles away that lights our path every day. Verse 10, but if a man walk in the night, the other 12 hours of a 24-hour day cycle, if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth because there is no light in him. He doesn't have the light in his eyes to be able to see things. This is the way the Bible expresses whether you have light or not. It's in him. Because all your all your eyeballs are is a reflecting device to take life in, light in to be able to see. But if you're walking around at night, those little reflectors have nothing to grab a hold of for you to recognize objects, and so you trip and fall. The lesson? The lesson is simple. God had given the Lord Jesus Christ a daytime in which to work. And he said in other places, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. I have a period of day in which to work. While it is my daytime, I'm not going to stumble and nothing's going to happen to me. I have my night coming. My night coming will start in Gethsemane. And it will include the chief priest's place. And it will include Pilate's judgment hall and Herod's judgment hall and my crucifixion. We have to go on. That's the lesson. It's a proverb. Obscure? Yes. Do you like obscurity in the Bible? I love it. It means that some scorner, skeptic, or fool can come into John chapter 11 and by the time he gets to verse 10, he gives up and quits. Because I want him to give up and quit. He doesn't deserve the Word of God. The pearls and the good things and the holy bread of God's Word doesn't belong to such a person. If you're not willing to put forth a little bit of effort, you don't deserve to understand the Bible. That's why it says, study to show thyself approved unto God. The only ones that meet God's approval are those that study, not those that run into a proverb like this and just throw up their hands. Well, I don't know what this is talking about. Because if you make the light, the S-O-N, Son of God, and that the light of the world, you are in deep trouble in John 11, 9 and 10. Verse 11, These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Do we need some more right division of God's Word? Oh, brethren, yes, we do. Right. You say, well, I can understand this one because he explains it. What are you going to do in a passage like Acts chapter 7? My wife came to me in the last 48 hours, and she said, I enjoyed reading that sermon and preaching of Stephen so much, and they stoned him, and it says he fell asleep. Well, now what are you going to do? Did he fall asleep? Now listen, my you, you need to say, in what sense or what division of that word sleep should we use? He died. Stephen was stoned to death. The Bible tells us so in other places. But it's called falling asleep. Now see, there you don't have an overt or express explanation, but we know from the rest of Scripture there are so many lessons in this chapter. 1 Corinthians 2.13 I want to make sure I get it word for word. 1 Corinthians 2.13 About the things that the natural man cannot know or understand, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them, which things also we speak. We apostles preach a message of things that the human ear, the human eye, and the human understanding cannot lay hold of, which things also we speak not in the words 
which man's wisdom teacheth, but which, that is, the words which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. That verse is very important. We compare the Bible's use of words like sleep. And so we understand it. So Jesus said in verse 11, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. Notice he calls him our friend. In their travels to and from Jerusalem, they must have stopped many times. We read about some of those stops at the house of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, or their multiple houses in the little village of Bethany. But I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, and Lord, and how often are we like this when we read the Bible? Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. If he's just sick and now he's sleeping, he's going to do well. How many times do we read the Bible like that and miss the glorious spiritual lesson contained there? You know why this is recorded? Do you know why God would shame his apostles in scripture? To comfort you. Because we're, you know, we're a little shamed reading it that we're so much like them. And it's recorded for our learning and comfort. I enjoy it. But I don't want to be guilty of it. I, I want to learn to rightly divide God's word and to be careful and cautious and to be looking for the Spirit's intent behind words because of 1 Corinthians 2.13, which they did not have yet. But guess what? They would teach us those lessons. The Apostle Paul would teach us. Jesus, Thank you, John, for verse 13. By the Holy Spirit, howbeit Jesus spake of his death. Though he used the word sleep, and though he used the word waking him out of sleep, so he's already said he's going to resurrect him. Hasn't he? Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep, meaning the ordinary thing that we usually mean by the word sleep when we rest for a few hours before we get up and have another day. Notice the division necessary about the word sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. The Bible will sometimes tell us when the Lord is speaking plainly, when the Holy Spirit is speaking plainly. First Timothy 4, 3 says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. And when you read a statement like that, you can... You should rub your hands with glee because what you're about to get doesn't take as much work as some other passages. But sometimes Jesus speaks in Proverbs. John did not write after verses 9 and 10, Jesus spoke plainly in those two verses because there's nothing plain about verses 9 and 10. It takes some work. But now he says plainly, Lazarus is dead to help clear up their trouble. You know, when Jesus would say to the to the disciples, excuse me, when Jesus would say to his apostles, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, what's the first reaction of an apostle of Jesus Christ? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Uh-oh, we must have forgot to bring bread, and he's chewing us out for not bringing bread. He has fed 5,000 with a boy's small lunch, and there was 12 baskets full left over. They're never listening to him to gather the spiritual import of his words. Lord, save us from that. Now he changed these men. You know he changed them. In this gospel of John, he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And they received the Holy Ghost again on the day of Pentecost. And they were different men. But let's not be like that. Verse 15, I am glad for your sakes. This is an important verse. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there in Bethany, 
to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Though he's dead, let's go. I have delayed and stayed two days. According to verse 6, after I had heard the word that he was sick, because I did it for your sakes, and I am glad about it. I am glad that the situation has now deteriorated from sickness to death. Now you may not be glad. Mary and Martha aren't very glad, and we're about to discover that. And when you pray for something and it gets worse, you may not be glad, but Jesus can still say, I am glad. Is there a lesson in that for you? Do you see the lesson? Do I need to explain it? Jacob was afraid for his life of his brother Esau. He wrestled with the Lord during the night and begged for deliverance from his brother Esau. During that wrestling match, the Lord touched his thigh and put his thigh out of joint. One of your large, the largest muscles of your body are in the lower half and a thigh out of joint severely hinders you in wrestling efficiently and effectively. Things went from bad to worse. I've pointed this out many times, but the blessing was just around the corner. Do you give up and forfeit when your thigh goes out of joint? Do you give up and forfeit when your sick brother dies in this particular case? No. Right. You keep on praying. You keep on trusting. And you keep on believing. I am glad. You say, well, that is so harsh. I'm glad for your sakes. He's going to grieve for the sisters. But he's glad for their sakes. That I was not there. Because raising another sick man, which you've seen countless examples of over the last three years, would not be as good as what I have in store for you. To the intent ye may believe. Please remember those words. So when we get to verses 40 through 42, you'll have a little idea that the chapter is connected. Please. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Whether it's dying with Lazarus or dying with Jesus, because they were so sure that the Jews in Judea were going to kill their Lord. Look at Thomas. Now, it is one thing to talk about dying. It's another thing to have death staring you in the face. Because this same Thomas, who we know in the pages of Scripture until the Lord changed him, was an unbelieving kind of a man. He was weak in faith. He is the one that after the other apostles had said they had seen the risen Lord, said, well, I'm not going to believe until I get to stick my fingers in the holes in his hands and stick my hand in the hole in his side. In John chapter 20, this Thomas, same one, as soon as he saw the threat approaching in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you know what he did? He ran away along with all of the apostles. They all fled the presence of our Lord. It's easy when you're on one side of Jordan to talk about how courageous you are. But you need to be building your faith on something better than your statements and your impulsive, passionate words like this. You need to be building your faith on God's impregnable, unmovable word. Because that's where real faith rests. He wasn't resting on God. He was resting on this despairing, troubled, fearful approach to going back into Judea. 
We might as well all die with him. Well, when he really got that opportunity, he fled as fast as anyone. They were all trying to set the land speed record away from Gethsemane, which you can read about in all the Gospels. Let us also go that we may die with him. Then when Jesus came, they've traveled across to Jordan, approaching Jerusalem, and they come near to Bethany. When Jesus came, he found that he had laid in the grave four days already. There's communication going on as messengers run back and forth. Now Bethany was nigh into Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. That's two miles, approximately two miles. Many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother out of Jerusalem. That's why it's there in context. Verse 20, Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Mary, as soon as she heard that Jesus was on his way, went and met him at some other place, not at the home, not at the gravesite, but out on Jesus' trip toward Bethany. Bethany lies on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and she went out and met him. Verse 21, Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Now these sisters were very close in some respects because these are precisely the same words that Mary will speak in in a few verses. But Martha utters them first. In verse 21, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. That was their original intent. And we're not going to falter for the statement. There's there's not a strong evidence of weak faith in this statement at all. That was their intent. That's why they sent to Jesus, He whom thou lovest is sick. Come and heal him. Speak the word and heal him. That was their intent. If Lord, if thou hadst been here, if you hadn't taken so long getting here, and whether she knew the delay or not, and why for the delay or not, we're not told. She just knew that if he'd been there, he could have easily kept him from dying. But I want you to see Martha's faith. And though we criticize Martha for Luke chapter 10, and though we may criticize Martha a little bit for John chapter 12, because she's serving again, And Mary is doing something in the 12th chapter of John. Here she has great faith. In verse 22, but I know. Though, if you'd been here, my brother had not died. I know that you could have stopped that sickness so easily. But I know. Though he has died. But I know that even now that he is dead. Whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. That is faith. That is great faith. There's nothing, there's nothing to criticize about that faith at all. Thank you, Lord, for Martha on this occasion. I know. You know, we may criticize Martha sometimes, and she may not have said something as audacious as, you can raise him from the dead. She just said, Lord, you weren't here. He has died, but though he is dead, this is the sense of the words, I know that you can ask for anything from God and he'll give it you. She cast herself upon the power of Almighty God and the Lord Jesus Christ's power in prayer with him. She may have come up a little short in not realizing that the power of life and death had been given by God to Jesus Christ. She may have temporarily pleaded insanity that he'd already raised the dead twice, that he'd already said just a few chapters earlier, 
She wasn't reading the epistle, remember. In John chapter 5, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. John chapter 5, in John chapter 5, Jesus also taught, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. This is a great statement of faith. When you are praying for something, and it's important to you, and the situation deteriorates, this is the third time I've mentioned this lesson, do you maintain your faith that though from your viewpoint the situation is now harder than it was, now for God to intervene and intervene and deliver you is going to take more effort, do you still believe? If you have a weakness in your faith where you would start to lose faith and lose confidence in God, then you may expect lots of these events in your life. Because the this kind of an event where it went from sickness down to death was for the building of faith. Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now that he is dead, whatsoever... Thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Now we have the benefit of reading this chapter with the whole event tied together in 46 verses. Now Martha is hopeful enough and faithful enough that she says what she did in verse 22, but she automatically relies on her theology and her doctrine to say in verse 24, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Does it say in the Bible about, and have you experienced in your life, not believing for joy? It's too good to be true. I don't really see how this could happen. She prayed the right prayer. In verse 22 are wonderful words. But when Jesus says, Lazarus, thy brother, shall rise again, she immediately jumps to her doctrinal foundation that he's going to rise again at the last day. I want to commend her again. She stood with Job, and she stood with David, and she understood that there was a last day coming in which the righteous would be raised from the dead. This was not dependent on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This was not dependent on 1 Corinthians 15. There are enough references to it in the book of Psalms. And I gave you some of them last night. I gave you four of them that refer to the resurrection. And you have Job 19 that was also read in an assembly of this church in the last two weeks about Job saying, I know that my Redeemer liveth and that this body is going to be raised up and with these very eyes. And though after my skin worms destroy and consume my whole body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. The resurrection of the dead has been known from the beginning. Job may be the oldest author in the pages of Scripture and he knew about the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of dead bodies. And it was on that foundation that they would carefully bury their dead because their bodies were sleeping in the ground waiting for that great day. Burial of the dead in the ground is the evidence that we believe in the resurrection. When we go to cremation, first of all, it's pagan and it's Hindu in its origin, and it is so profane of a treatment of God's gift, and it is so 
contrary to Scripture, because everyone in Scripture, where there was an opportunity, was carefully buried. Whether they had their head cut off like John the Baptist, or whether they owned no property like Abraham when his wife Sarah died. They believed in the resurrection, and Martha believed in the resurrection. And Martha shifts the focus when she hears the words, it's too good to be true that he's going to be raised immediately. I know that he'll be raised in the great day. She says in response to the Lord Jesus Christ, do you believe that? Do you know that? That was a foundation for her life. She had that confidence that Lazarus would be raised in the great day of resurrection. Now she's going to weep for her personal loss. But she knew that. And that should be a foundation. That is a a bedrock for our faith. Is that any one of us, or ourselves, though our bodies die, our spirits do not die, they go immediately to be with the Lord, and our bodies will be raised at the last day. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus had the power over death to resurrect dead bodies. I am the resurrection. He just takes the whole power and the authority and the ability to take a dead body and to speak life into it and to bring it back into its animated form and to raise it from death as his own, his own property. That had been given to him by his father. And I quoted the verses from John chapter 5. I am the resurrection. Whether it's at the last day, Martha, I am the resurrection, or whether it's at a day before that, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm able to give life. I'm able to raise dead bodies. He had already raised at least two from the dead. You know we love the widow's son in the little city of Nain in Luke chapter 7 where Jesus interrupted a funeral and gloriously reigned on that parade. He stopped that funeral buyer and said, Young man, I say to thee, arise. And he came down off that funeral buyer and he presented him to his mother. Now how's that the way to end a funeral for a widow and her son, her only son? Praise the Lord. These events had happened. The daughter of Jairus had been raised from the dead when the Lord Jesus Christ put out all the mourners and took the mother and father in there and raised her from the dead and said, feed her something. She's hungry. That's our Lord. Glorious. He had the power over his own physical life to lay it down to take it up again. And do you know what he did for you and me? We're on this side of the cross. We're on this side of the resurrection. When he says, I am the resurrection of life, do you know how much you can believe in it? He went into death himself to show you that he meant the words when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He went and suffered death himself. He was buried. He had a great stone put in front of his tomb. And he was there for three days and three nights in his body only. His spirit was in heaven with the thief that was elect and saved and with his father But he tore those bars away as we sang this morning and he came forth to show you that he believed and had complete confidence. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. John chapter 10 and verse 18, this commandment have I received of my father. So when he says, I am the resurrection of life, do you know how much confidence he had in that? He let the Jews and the Romans kill him and he raised himself from the dead. By almighty power. He had all that 
ability. He would fully prove it first by being the first fruits of them that slept. They that are Christ, I mean, Christ first, and then they that are Christ at His coming. We're going to follow Him because He's the first fruits. There's a great harvest of souls, bodies, to come out of the ground in the great day, the, the last day, as Martha called it. And the Lord Jesus Christ has all that power in Himself. Because I live, ye shall live. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18, He says, I was dead, but I'm alive, and I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys. I have the authority, I have the power, the keys of hell and of death. Amen. He said to his own statement, and you should say it to this statement right here, I am the resurrection and the life. I defeat death. Death has lost its sting. The grave has no victory because I have the authority and the power over it. Thank you, Lord, for such a glorious doctrine. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He that believeth, present tense, though he were dead, that is a subjunctive mood verb, meaning a hypothetical future situation. You know, there is indicative, statement of facts. There's interrogative, an asking of a question. There's imperative of giving an order. There is subjunctive of describing a possible future condition. And that's what's right here. He that believeth in me, present tense, though he were dead, though something were to happen to him and he were to die, which will happen to all of us except we live until the second coming of the Lord, yet shall he live. I've heard these verses tried to be used as teaching regeneration. Regeneration is not here. This is the final phase of salvation. This is the resurrection of dead bodies. A man that believes in me in the present tense, though he dies, and we're all going to die, yet shall he live. See, a man that, when you come to regeneration, a man that believes present tense has been made alive in the past. So I'm going to stop right there. It's just, I'm so sorry that I ever heard it. I'm so sorry that some of you ever heard it. Let's just go on. This is the final phase of salvation right here in verse 25. This is our resurrection from the dead in our physical bodies and our glorification in heaven. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, no matter what happens to him and no matter if he dies, yet shall he live because I will raise him from the dead. And when it, we speak of raising him from the dead, we are only referring to the body. If you do not learn that distinction, when Stephen fell asleep, the only thing that fell asleep was his body. If you don't learn that and get that down pat, you're going to believe in soul sleep. You're going to become a Seventh-day Adventist, whether you know it or not. That'll really be ignorant. When you hold their doctrines, you don't even know you're a Seventh-day Adventist. We don't believe in soul sleep. When you go back and you read in the book of Psalms, that once I die, my mouth can't praise you, and the dead know nothing at all? Have you ever heard? Oh, they love those kind of verses. Of course the dead know nothing at all, because what we're talking about is your dead body, not your spirit. Your spirit knows more than it's ever known, because it's in the presence of the Lord. Be established on this fact, brethren, you're going to be led astray. There have been those in our midst that have communed with us in recent years, that believe such heresies. I am the resurrection and the life of dead bodies like Lazarus' dead body. 
He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? I love this 26th verse. Now, I don't usually tell you that you could take, you could see in a verse two different senses, but I want to give you one right here. And I've told you before, what I mean by it is inspired ambiguity. What I mean by inspired ambiguity, that God the Holy Spirit did not give us enough data for us to be exclusive on a sense. Most of the time he does. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you know what the simplest explanation for that is? Since it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so was 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord is the easiest explanation for that text. Just look at it. He that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Are those that are alive until the coming of the Lord, is it true of them that they shall never die? Did Paul teach that? Yes. That is one explanation. And I don't want to deny it. And Baptist fathers before us have held that position on that verse. However, he that liveth, spiritually liveth and believeth in me, shall never die. And now we're going to use death in another sense. I want you to know this is the weaker explanation. Because now it's changing the word death. Because now it's the penal death or the second death of the lake of fire. A man that lives and believes in me shall never die penally. Because Jesus Christ has abolished death in any penal sense. When I say death in a penal sense, whereby we're going to be punished by it. The death of our physical body is not punishment for a believer. It is escape for a believer. It is a departure. The Apostle Paul would say it would be far better to depart and to be with Christ than to be left here. There's no more penal punishment involved in it. Because you need to take that position, understand that, for 2 Timothy 1.10 says, But now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death. You know, why did he say that when we still die? So that skeptics could run to 2 Timothy 1.10 and throw, close up the Bible and walk away from it. Because we're to study to show ourselves approved unto God, and we're to rightly divide the word of truth. He hath abolished the penal effect of death, the bondage of death, the control of death, so that we can say, Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, we must hasten on. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And I just gave you two senses, and both of which the Bible teaches and are true of this particular verse. Believest thou this? Do you believe what I just said? That I'm the resurrection, the life, that though a man were to die, yet shall he live, and that he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die? Do you believe all this, Martha? Do you believe this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord. Do you say, Yea, Lord, this morning? Do you believe these things? When you look at a person that is losing their physical vitality and is soon to die, are you able to believe? Yea, Lord, I believe. It's going to happen more in this congregation, brethren. Do we all believe? Can we say with Mary, Yea, Lord. Yes, Lord. I certainly believe. I believe every statement of what you stated there. I believe it in its fullness. And that's why I gave you a fuller statement of it so that you can believe in the whole thing. Because we have the advantage of 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 that Martha did not have at this point. I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. I believe everything you have just said about you being the resurrection and life because you are the Christ. 
You are the Messiah. You're God's anointed deliverer. You are Emmanuel. You are God with us. You are the mighty God, the everlasting Father that should come into the world. What a statement of worship. Do you know what Jesus would say about a declaration like this? He told Peter when Peter said these same words and this same identity of Jesus of Nazareth, flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. God the Father was blessing Martha right at this point to make a public declaration about the Lord Jesus Christ's identity. Be very careful about accusing her of having weak faith. She has a few little troubles. But remember, it's a pretty big thing to raise the dead. When she had so said, she went her way and called Mary her sister secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she has heard that, and we believe that, do you understand that if John had written down everything, if John had to write down for your benefit that Jesus had called for Mary, and then he had to repeat it, that Martha went and told Mary that Jesus had called for Mary, that the book would be too heavy for you to bring to church? You say, well, what if she lied? Well, when I look at this, I don't even want to deal with it. When you see a woman that is so full of faith and God's blessing her with a declaration right there, we just move on. Now, Jesus was not yet come into the town. Jesus wouldn't have loved him anyway. Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him because she had gone out to meet him on his way into Bethany. The Jews then which were with her, that is with Mary, in the house and comforted her, when they saw Mary that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Jesus, then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Same words of Martha over there in verse 21. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have ye laid him? He didn't say, O ye of little faith. Here, let me take a few minutes here for another lesson about the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. Could they have been all jumping around, clapping their hands, that Jesus was there and He was going to raise the dead either now or in the day of resurrection? Yes, but it doesn't happen anywhere in Scripture. Not even our Lord acted that way. When Jesus was in Gethsemane, did He see the joy that was set before Him? Had He set His face to go to Jerusalem? Did He have power to lay His life down? And did had He made a statement in John 10, the good shepherd giveth His life for the sheep? Did He know all that? Did He know that just a few hours of torment and He was going to be in God's presence? Did He know all that? Did He weep in Gethsemane? Did He cry? What's the adverb in Hebrews chapter 5 about his crying? Was it weak crying or strong crying? Did he, did he weep and sweat as it were great drops of blood? Was he in an, it's an A word. Was he in an agony? But he knew all those things? Don't you ever forget. And I, and I'm just your teacher. And I don't want to forget. He was tempted in all points like as we are, but He never sinned in it. Our emotions get the better of us and they control us and our passions lead us to do things or to say things that are wrong, but never the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that he could be overcome with emotion. He was overcome in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he still prayed, Father, if it be possible, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, and that is how we must always pray, not my will, but thine be done. Father, if it be possible, raise my sick mother. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Father, raise my sick wife, if it be possible. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus groaned and was troubled in his spirit by the weeping because the verse tells us that. Verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw the weeping and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. He was in an agony in Gethsemane at the thought of what was coming and strongly cried out to God and sweat as it were great drops of blood, and seeing this grief, though he had planned it for the benefit of his apostles, and though it was designed for the greater glory of God, he was troubled because he saw the sorrow of those that he loved dearly. When you love someone dearly and you see them sorrowing, what does it do to you? It evokes that if you're empathetic. And the Lord Jesus Christ was perfectly empathetic. That means being able to feel the feelings of others. Jesus was perfectly perfect that way. Do you want this passage in your Bible or not, or do you think that this is weakness in the part of your Lord? See, when I read Hebrews 4.15, that he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin, therefore we can go boldly to obtain help in the time of need, I want, him to, know, I want to know passages like this, that he weeps with those that weep, just like he tells us to weep with those that weep. Right. How in the world could he tell us to weep with those that weep when he laughed and clapped his hands because he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. I am sorry for any of you that are old enough to know that in the past I preached this differently. Where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Did Jesus weep over the city of Jerusalem? Luke 19. The same Jesus that said, if you fall on this stone, you'll be broken, but if this stone falls on you, it will grind you to powder. Right there in the context, did he say, because you didn't know the time of your visitation? But does it say he wept over the city of Jerusalem? There is a human... Listen, the divine purpose of God had been set that all the righteous blood shed in this world from Abel forward to the Lord Jesus Christ was going to be exacted out of that generation. That was set, and the Lord Jesus Christ delighted in that vindication of his own identity and of the power of God, but he still wept over the city of Jerusalem. Because seeing all those bustling children playing in the streets, there's still a human compassion for the destruction that's going to fall upon that city. And for right here, though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead, though he knew the whole event was for that purpose, and though these women had shown some faith in the matter, he still wept with them because they were weeping. It says so. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. If that was an error, Jesus would have corrected it right there. It was obvious, the nature of his weeping. Some of them said, Could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died? Some of them were rather hopeless, because he was dead. 
I mean, actual, after all, who has ever raised the dead? But Jesus groans in his spirit, and Jesus therefore again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Did David know that Jonathan feared the Lord? Did David know that Jonathan, when he died on the battlefield, his body would be raised at the last day and that his spirit was already in heaven? Is 2 Samuel chapter 1 given to us to tell us that David lamented with a great lamentation and cried all day long? Was there something wrong in that? This is the son of David. David knew that Jonathan would be raised again. Jesus knew that he was about in five minutes to raise Lazarus again. But there is still grief at a funeral. When we go to Acts chapter 9 and we see believing widows gathered around Tabitha, were they, what were they doing? They were weeping. Does the Bible say that all of your tears are in his bottle? Does it say he is able to succor them that are tempted because he himself hath suffered being tempted? But never without sin. His emotions never got the better of him one bit. But he was moved with compassion. And you better be thankful for a Savior that was moved with compassion. Brethren, the second half of this chapter doesn't have any compassion in it except for you and me. There's no compassion for Caiaphas. But I want you to see both sides of the Lord of glory. When you're in trouble, no matter how small or large that trouble is, he has compassion upon your trouble because he himself suffered the temptation of being in trouble while he was here on earth. Jesus said, take ye away the stone. They came to a grave in verse 38, and it was a cave grave, and a stone lay upon it. He was under the ground. Take ye away the stone. Now poor Martha, she always worried about the details, didn't she? Somebody needs to be in the kitchen fixing food or nobody's going to have anything to eat. Luke chapter 10, John chapter 12, and here she is. There's going to be a stench. We got trouble. She might have been a clean freak. We don't know. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Now, did the Lord Jesus know it was going to be four days, two days, six days? Did he know that at four days the body starts to stink? Did he arrange all that so that in this crowd of witnesses there was going to be proof that Lazarus was dead? Take away the stone. And brethren, I'm not going to preach a sermon here that I've heard so many times. Not so many times, but I've heard about it so many times. This is not the gospel preacher preaching the law of God, which is removing the stone to reveal the deadness of sinners dead in trespasses and sins. Then Jesus speaks the word of regeneration, and the man comes out clothed all up in religious bondage of false traditions and habits, and Jesus says, loose him. And so the preacher snips off his grave clothes in order so that he can move freely and be baptized. Is that deep? That's deeper than I can reach. Not even with a drill. That sermon is preached out of this passage. I'm going to tell you what this passage is for. I am the resurrection and the life. And he means a dead body that stinks. And I love the arrangement of all the timing so that Martha would even say that, although just gently and kindly we chastise her a little 
For if Jesus said, remove the stone, aren't those the words you would want to hear? Take away the stone. Jesus saith unto her, said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Where was that said? It's the combination of things that have been said to her. That's why I told you to remember verse 4. Look at verse 4. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. That was spoken by Jesus to messengers that came from Martha that took that message back and related to Martha. And then Jesus had that exchange with her that we have contained in verses 21 down through 28, 27. Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. It's the combination of everything that was said. There is not one precise verse that says exactly this, except the combination of those things do say it. Believest thou this? Was that in verse 26? Did he say it was for the glory of God in verse 4? Okay. Verse 41, Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou always, that hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven. Jesus, on occasion, and we're not, the Bible doesn't teach us nor require of us that we close our eyes when we pray. But there was a lifting up of the eyes to heaven because we look unto the hills, we look unto the heavens from whence cometh our help and our aid because he is called the God of heaven. And so we look up to the God of heaven. We don't look horizontally. We don't look down. We look up. And Jesus lifted up his eyes. And just remember that. That there's not a necessity nor a requirement in the Bible to pray with your eyes closed. We ordinarily do it in order to minimize the distraction of things we would see if our eyes were still open. And so our minds can be more focused on our prayer. But Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and made this prayer. And he is referring to a prayer that he has made earlier. Because there are three past tense verbs in this prayer. Referring to a prayer that he's made earlier. We don't have the whole prayer there. We have some statements made about his apostles in verse 15 that the event of Lazarus dying and being raised from the dead was for his apostles to believe. And they are the ones that are now standing by. Please follow me. There were others from Jerusalem, oh yes. But listen, there was a body of men that were the most important to him on all occasions. And it was his apostles. Because it was them he needed to fit with the greatest of faith for preaching his gospel. And so when he says in his short prayer to his father, because of the people which stand by, it includes most definitely his apostles because in verse 15 he said that this event is for the intent that ye, the apostles, may believe. Look at the past tense verb. Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. He didn't say, Father, I thank thee that thou art hearing me, that thou hearest me, but thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hear, I knew. Not I know that thou hearest me always, but I knew. But because the people which stand by, I said it. The people are standing by now, but he said it past tense earlier for those people that are now standing by. You say, that sounds very convoluted. It is the very same combination of verbs that you will find in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, that if you don't know how to reconcile them, you will end up with Jesus descending into hell, into prison, between his death 
and his resurrection. Where do you think the Apostles' Creed comes up with the words descended into hell? It's 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. And it's the same kind of terminology. Because it says that by His Spirit He went and preached to the spirits that are now in prison. Who preached? When? It's Noah that preached by the Spirit of Christ to spirits that were then, in Peter's day, in prison. And here it is. He's referring to a prayer that's been made. And see, I don't want you, I don't want to get you distracted or diverted from the glory of what's taking place. The Jews accused Jesus of raising the dead and performing miracles by the power of Beelzebub. So Jesus Christ does this very formally and very carefully. I thank thee, Father. He has prayed. He is now praying. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. He didn't have them horizontal or down. It was God he was addressing. He had already said it was for the glory of God in verse 4. He said it was for an increase of faith of the apostles in verse 15. And now he makes this short prayer. Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because the people which stand by, I said it, not that I am saying it, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And who are those people in particular that he wants them to believe that God sent him? His apostles. And when he had thus spoken... In verse 43, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. His friend, Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, Lazarus, come forth. It says he cried with a loud voice. And we love the power of the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 29 speaks about thunder, and it, and it describes the voice of the Lord causeth the hinds to calve. And it says many things about the voice of the Lord. But do you know in Luke chapter 4, it tells us that Jesus went in to Capernaum and found a man there possessed of a devil, and he commanded that devil to come out of him. And the crowd responded with the words, What a word is this! With an exclamation point. One of my favorite expressions about the Lord Jesus Christ. What a word is this! What a word! Come out of him. And the spirits have to come out. Spirits of Gadarenes that couldn't be tamed by any human invention. The Lord can speak the word. That centurion that said, I have men under me and I say, go and he goeth. I say to another, come and he cometh. You can speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, I haven't found so great a faith. No, not in all Israel. Do you believe the word of Christ? Jesus can speak the word and change your life drastically. He can change your death, as he did Lazarus, drastically. Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him, and let him go. The poor man, if he's bound up that way, then he must have been bouncing out in in a rather... Strange form of movement because he was so bound up with clothes. Let me comment very briefly that this was the Jewish tradition of burial, that there was a large, a large cloth that covered the whole body and a separate napkin that was for the head for further damnation of the shroud of Turin. Amen. 
The Shroud of Turin is entirely false. Jesus was not in one grave cloth. When you go over to John chapter 20, or John chapter 19 and John 20, and you find the women going in there and the uh, Peter and John going in there and finding the grave clothes. The clothes for his body were laid in one place. The napkin was folded and laid in another place because they were two separate cloths. And it's in our Bibles twice. Once here about Lazarus, because this was the Jewish tradition, there was no single cloth. A simple child, by reading and trusting the Bible, can know that all the scientists and religionists and others that promote the Shroud of Turin are wrong. 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 Loose him and let him go. The poor man, he's all bound up in those grave clothes, but he was alive because Jesus said and was, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, and Lazarus was dead four days, yet shall he live. It's true of all of us in the last day, but it was true of Lazarus in this day. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. Remember that Jesus had said in John chapter 10, we looked at it last Sunday, though ye believe not me, believe the works. Believe the works. That ye may no one believe that the Father is in me and I in him. The miracles of the Lord Jesus convinced some to believe that truly, This was the Son of God, like the centurion, watching all the events around the crucifixion. But do you know what Jesus says to you? And do you know what I ask you? Do you believe everything in this chapter? Believest thou this? Are you saying in your heart, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, that was to come into the world. Do you believe it all? Jesus said of you, because you did not get to see events like this, that your faith and you are greater than those who saw and believed because of what they saw. He said that after he showed Thomas his hands in his side and said, give me your finger. Stick it into my hands. Put your, put your hand into my side. Then he said, Thomas, you're blessed because you've seen. You believe because you've seen, but blessed are those that have not seen and believe. And that's you and me. He had a blessing for us. Right. Do you believe this? This written record. That this really happened. That this is history that counts. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Unbelievable. You could watch a man four days dead, the stench come out of that hole, and then Jesus called him by name, and the man comes bouncing out in his grave clothes. He's cut free. He wants a drink. He wants something to eat. They can witness all that, and they want to go to the Pharisees. They are so bound up in their tradition and the authority of men that they go and tell what Jesus had done to aid the Pharisees in the destruction of our Lord. And with that, we will come back to the prophecy of Caiaphas in the second assembly. Do you believe? I am the resurrection and the dead. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Yea, Lord. Yea, Lord, we believe. We believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you are not standing in body in front of us, but you are seated in body at the right hand of God, and you're walking by spirit around your candlestick in this place. Bless us to follow you more closely.